Welcome to another episode of Clear to Close. I'm your host, Alan Paris, uh, always joined by my uh, oats to my hall, uh, <laughs> Ryan Traeger. The Garfunkel to your Simon. Oh, <laughs> oh. See, if we would have no, just really planned it out, it, we would have done it better with Chelsea's idea. I want to be Simon. And introducing herself, no Chelsea, uh, no. the professional person on the podcast, <laughs> uh, as always, joining us. Today we have uh, someone that you probably know pretty well, uh, Rob Crisman joining the show. Rob shows up in your mailbox around 6.45 a.m., um, giving you the news updates and what's happening in the mortgage industry. He's become an industry thought leader. You'll see him at conferences. He's an amazing guy, super passionate about the mortgage industry, and I think someone that uh, you know has taken a, a different career path, but something that's super inspiring to a lot of people. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Robert Crisman. Okay, so your son is, where is your son? What? Where's your son biking to and from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's going to Death Valley. Oh, we're on. Um, right now he's on a bike uh, on the eastern edge of Death Valley, bound for Phoenix. And is he a cyclist to be in with? He is, he is a cyclist, and he is, uh, he's using that for a little bit of rehabilitation because he, he was in a serious accident in October. Yeah. And so he uh, is using bicycling to uh, to help uh, help with the rehab and keep his spirits up and get some exercise and so forth. But it's interesting with his, the increase in technology that is everywhere these days. He has outfitted his bicycle with the ability to charge his computer and his cell phone while he rides, and so kind of like a Prius. Yeah. yeah. And he is able to basically have a mobile office slash apartment slash restaurant because he has his camping gear. Does he say he's, is he hauling a tent or a Yes, he has a t- tent and a yeah. sleeping bag and so forth. And he, it's a little more high tech than a homeless person. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, the interesting thing is that when I, when I talk to CEOs around the nation, they will often say that they are trying to stay away from hiring people who need an office. They don't want another lease to deal yeah. with. They don't want to buy office furniture for a dollar and have to sell it at some point in the future for 10 cents on the dollar. So you have CEOs who, at least with loan officers, uh, and to some extent underwriters are saying, can you work from your home? Can you work from Starbucks? Uh, do we really need a whole nother office? Uh, to deal with. So this whole mobility thing is very interesting to me and uh, and to the industry to see see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I think like you look at, at least in the tech space, there's a ton of extremely successful tech companies who have zero headquarters. Like the like a example, like Zapier, she makes API connections. Their entire company is fully remote. And I think especially as the attracting younger kind of straight from college or the millennial workforce is like they want to go live different places for better or for worse they want to go live different places experience different things and not be locked down to one location which is interesting we should also bring that back to what that has for the housing market but i think that creates to, to attract that talent you have to start providing something different yeah and the interesting thing with my son ravi is that he will get up early and work for some period of time and then be on his bike for some period of time and then work at night 
it's not the traditional eight to five right. or six a.m. to three p.m. situation. Yeah, it, and it if you're doing certain tasks, uh, that that really can be an advantage. You also have obviously a lot of offshoring slash outsourcing going on where Absolutely. you have underwriting and some of the non-client touching uh, mortgage items, mortgage duties going to India or the Philippines. And so you have these companies that are functioning basically 24 hours 24, a day. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So very interesting, some of the things that are going on. Yeah, I think that it's some... I think it's also a function of how the real estate industry um, has moved in that direction a little bit faster than mortgage, and mortgage seems to be a lagging um, metric. But with real estate, I've seen a lot of brokerages that are they're starting to lose a lot of margin because they're paying their agents a ton, and the company dollar has been decreasing over the last five, I think 10 years actually. And one of the metrics that these owners of, of these companies are looking at is the agents per square foot or square foot per agent. And it's continually decreasing. They're trying to get less and less square feet in their offices because, hey, what are you doing in the office? Go out. <laughs> like, Go have these open houses. Go do all these things. And so, yeah, when you have underwriters who are a finite resource in this industry, they can start making their own decisions to say, hey, I can do my work at home. I can be, um, based on my success, it's objective success, based on the metrics and you don't have to have an office to go do that. So I, I love that type of conversation. It's really interesting to see how it's, it's going to play forward. So we're projecting that the mortgage professionals are a digital nomad future job. Then <laughs> Go where the people are. If they're, uh, it, it used to be where the loan officer would want to be in the real estate office. Cause that's where the customers yeah. were going. Right now the real estate agents aren't even in the real estate offices. So where are the, where are the loan officers going to be? They can't just sit at their desk and get deals unless it's a direct consumer shop. They got to be out there grinding. Yeah. I mean, I think I can completely see the loan officer being, and I think it's already like you're building relationships, you're out in the public, you're, um, you know, you're out in the community. It's interesting to think this industry could be completely like remote or, yeah. or, uh, and I think in, ta- in terms of attracting talent and, and, and what that means to changing the industry, you know, the workforce in the industry continues to get older every year. The average age is if you want that new talent, if you want to attract those people, maybe this industry is set up for being uh, a remote in a nomad like position. Well, it's in its in its has a, and it has a ripple effect because when you talk to mortgage insurance companies, the traditional mortgage insurance salesperson will go to a branch and say, Hey, I'm from wherever. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, if they go to a branch, half the loan officers aren't there. And so why does the MI salesperson need to visit that branch? Yeah. It's a good point. Right. Well, it kind of goes against though, the history of this is a relationship business. How do you how do you build those relationships when it's a little bit outside of like literally outside your door? Like it's easier if you're in the office, you can go see people, you hang around the water cooler. You're building relationships now where no one's in their offices. How do you do that? That's tough. Mm. Very tough. 
Well, the voice you're hearing, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, is the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Rob Crisman. Uh, Please most, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you most likely, uh, he most likely uh, welcomes you every morning to the to the daily mortgage uh, industry. Um, we're super ha- excited to have you on the show. Uh, and currently, we're in New Orleans. First time in New Orleans, multiple times it's in New Orleans, multiple times. Multiple times. Uh, we're here for the TMC conference, uh, or it overlaps with with us being down here. Um, the conference is, I think we, you know, we've been TMC members for the Mortgage Cowboy. For those that don't know the acronym, um, we've been TMC members for a couple years now. It's an amazing conference. Like it's a completely different environment, feel, culture compared to let's call it an MBA uh, annual or anything like that. And and the uh, the Independent Mortgage Bankers Conference was here a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know the attendance numbers, but I know the, the Mortgage Collaborative event, they, they were very pleased with the turnout, which is interesting because it was Valentine's Day and it was President's Day yesterday. Yeah. And it's kind of ski week and it's uh, Mardi Gras. So you see all kinds of things going on in the streets. So, yeah, interesting time to be in New Orleans. Yeah. New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans. Well, I think one of the things that you have a unique position on uh, in your in your role is you get to see the news and the shakeups and what's happening in the mortgage industry as you write it to send it out to everybody um, that subscribed your newsletter. I think that puts you in a position of what's the industry doing well, what's the industry maybe going awry, and what's the temperature right now as you think about the mortgage industry. So the temperature is is hot (laughs) the forecast is hot yeah uh everybody had a great january and by when i say everybody i'm sure there are exceptions but generally speaking lenders everywhere had very good january's record lock months record pipelines they can't believe that the typical december january february lull has not happened. Yeah, I mean, spring home buying season has moved to... Has, has shifted up. Climate, yeah. climate yeah. change in the mortgage <laughs> industry. And you have fantastic 2019s that companies are coming off of. So they have a fair amount of cash uh, from profits. They have full pipelines. They continue to have very good closing months. And so it's a great time right now to be in the lending industry. The... The atmosphere that uh, was present, say, a year ago at the beginning of 2019, uh, kind of the woe is me, uh, rates are going to go up, we're having to lay people off, et cetera, that, you know, we've swung 180 degrees from that, and now, uh, you know, they can do no wrong. And if anything, the industry, rather than being contemplative and trying to figure out strategy, is reacting to this continued low rate environment. And it is very much the, we need to close these loans now. We don't know if it's going to last till May or June. And uh, who knows what, what's going to happen with rates, but everybody thinks rates are going to stay about the same, which would be nice. But you have the kind of the, the rank and file, the folks in the trenches who have who are focused on closing these loans and getting the job done and, and so forth, helping borrowers in a compliant manner they are relying more and more on the CEOs and the ownership to kind of have their eye on the horizon and try to think about some strategy and think about 
where do we need to go from here and do we need to change anything and do we need to Im install any new software or roll out a new LOS or a new hedging system, whatever it might be. So they're relying on senior management more than ever to, to, to not be involved in the day-to-day -day loan closings, but to, to kind of keep their eye on, on, uh, on what competitors are doing. And nobody wants to get caught flat-footed in this kind of environment. Well, that's tough to do because historically there was a sentiment that rates would rise continually and people shorting bonds were just getting crushed year after year after year. And so how, I mean, those people that are in senior management roles, they're guessing too. It, it's kind of interesting in 2018, like you mentioned, the margin compression happened. A lot of people broke even at best. And now you're sitting here in 2020 with full pipelines in January. No one saw that coming. Right. It's, it's a interesting discussion to have when <clears throat> you are talking to the owner or CEO of a, of a lender. And it's not that rates are not important, because they are important. They, they drive the business. But the focus for successful companies is not so much forecasting where interest rates are going to go. It is forecasting where technology is going to take the company. It's, it's trying to forecast how much of a spend they're going to have on marketing, on advertising, on training, especially for new loan officers, uh, improving the efficiency rather than going out and paying somebody a huge guarantee or a big signing bonus, trying to improve their efficiency and try to get you know three and a half loans instead of three loans out of a couple hundred loan officers makes a huge difference. And so what do they do with that? And so it's, it's not that rates are not important, but the eye of a lot of these companies is more on strategy and trying to execute their business model rather than say, oh, well, I think rates are going to stay the same or I think rates are going to go down, so we need to do this. I don't think that when you uh, talk to a CEO, generally speaking, they aren't betting their company or their family's financial future on their ability to forecast rates because, as you say, they're guessing. You know, you could have one opinion. I could have another opinion. Um, everybody has a different opinion about where rates are going to go, and, and no one can see uh, a coronavirus coming along and keeping rates low. Nobody can see a company, a huge company, running into trouble. No, nobody can see a country going bankrupt. Um, and so... Yes, the economy, the U.S. economy continues to do pretty well, but rates have stayed low because of what's going on overseas. And so we almost have, at this point, a best, the best of all possible worlds. We have a low interest rate environment. The U.S. economy is doing well, uh, and a lot of people can, can benefit from refinancing, and a lot of companies can benefit from introducing new technology to help them become more efficient. So it's, it's really a pretty neat time to be in residential lending right now. Yes, it these people that if they're not quite worried about forecasting interest rates, and like you said, they're worried more about ways to increase efficiency, decrease cost, at the same time growing volume. Um, is there much fear of like disruption in the industry? So a lot of people are trying to use these technologies and things to better themselves. At the same time, are they curious what's out there that could just take the industry by storm and flip their business model upside down? I think that there are 
concerns. I don't know. I think that the term worry may be too much of a, uh, not an exaggeration, but I think it's too strong. There are, there are concerns that companies have. There are concerns that capital markets people have that will get into a, uh, a wild rate fluctuation environment because volatility in interest rates does not help secondary marketing capital markets. Mm-hmm. You have a concern that uh, Amazon, you know, it's going to mm-hmm. inter- come into lending, Zillow, yeah. uh, which, uh, you know, I have my opinions on. I, I just don't think, I just don't see that happening. Uh, but you have that concern. You have the concern that Quicken is, is going to get, uh, you know, reach 100% market share. And they're going to, everybody's going to get their mortgage through Quicken. Well, that hasn't really happened. They, they have made some fantastic strides, as have brokers around the nation. But uh, nobody has more than nobody has a huge overwhelming market share right now in mortgage banking. Nobody mm-hmm. is expected to. There is a concern that the big banks like Chase and Wells will re-enter FHA lending at the retail level, which will squeeze profit margins for a lot of independent mortgage banks who rely on FHA loans for profits. So there are concerns that are out there, but nobody is. Um, uh, Nobody is thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to do the industry in. Even the, even the CFPB, which, uh, as TWID, uh, TWID, listen to me, as TRID was being rolled out, a lot of lenders were saying, oh, my gosh, this is the end of lending as we know it. It's going to do us in. Well, a lot of those lenders are having fantastic years. It's been five years since TRID was rolled out. And, you know, we continue to lend money and help millions of borrowers around the nation despite TRID. And so the CFPB, which used to be a concern, like a worry for many, mm-hmm. um, has become more of a concern. And I think a lot of companies have adapted to the rules and regulations, and, and they like having a level, level playing field in terms of ability to repay and so forth. So even the CFPB is, has ceased becoming a worry for most and just, you know, they, they need to have the CFPB on the radar screen as they do with state regulators, but it's not... It's not expected that the CFPB is going to do the industry in. Right. So it's kind of a healthy paranoia. Yes. Do you think there's enough of a healthy paranoia in the industry? Like, if I mean, those are the topics that you said maybe worry was an exaggeration. But do you think that the average lender is worried enough or is paranoid enough about what could change? Personally, yes. Professionally, <laughs> <laughs> professionally, yes. I, I think that I think that once again, you've you've got the people who are the underwriters and the processors and the doctors and the funders and the loan originators doing their thing, and they are relying on the CEOs uh, to keep an eye on things. And right now, it's it's pretty much uh, like I said earlier. It's a it's a great time to be in lending, and a lot of CEOs are are keeping an eye on things, but. Um, yeah, for right now, I think there's a healthy amount of concern, and nobody. It's not. It's not the worry that we had, like I said, a year ago, where margins were going to com- margins were compressed and rates were going to go up, and who am I going to lay off next, and so forth. Now it is uh, how to hire selectively, how to use technology selectively, how to best spend our money. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, part of the part of the, the increase in volume, you said, obviously, has taken a, a huge amount and leaned heavily on the underwriters, the processors, the loan officers. Even this, even the executives are slammed. It seems like, like we, you know, we we talk with our our customers a lot, and they're 
you know, they, the executives can barely find time to, to like think forwardly or to kind of think about the next few years of the business. And I think that's in my time in the industry, the industry to me has always seemed relatively reactive instead of proactive. Um, how, how can someone do, like, as you said, the rates are the driving force of the majority of volume and what, what sales is going to be. If that is unable to be predicted accurately to kind of really drive your business, how do you find the time and where can you focus your efforts to like move your business forward and kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and the, of the lenders? Right. A lot of company lend or company leaders have really renewed their delegation skills uh, or up them because they can't look at everything. So you do have vendor management people on, on staff or even vendors who offer vendor management. Mm -hmm. You have, uh, you have people who specialize in origination, people who specialize in capital markets. And, and so the CEOs have delegated, uh, I'd say now more than ever, a lot of responsibilities because everybody is slammed. And the CEO probably is not the best person to figure out what kind of LOS to roll out. But they have somebody who works for them who is. Same with a hedging system. They have somebody who can make that determination. Obviously, the CEO will have input. So CEOs are slammed. Um, and they are delegating, I would say, to some very, very smart people in the industry who, who help them. I like that one of the uh, delegation tricks that I've seen really work out is um, dividing the sales management function into a couple of different areas. And one being, you know, more the HR aspect of sales, because um, there's a lot of turnover in, in sales and in mortgage loan officers, and there's a lot of hiring. So it's that it's a lot of that game. Uh, the other side is you need to support the sales staff. You need to um, have tools and, and an area for them to learn and understand what the tools that management has purchased, um, how to use that to impact your day positively, um, and, a, and a, a long list of other things, too. How do you grow as a salesperson? And so kind of that division of delegation, I thought, has been really important for some companies, and I hope that more do it, too. Yeah, the when you look at uh, leadership at companies, they've either risen up through the production side of the business or through the op side. More times than not, I would say more CEOs have come up through the production side, so they know that side of things very well. And they rely on the op staff, vice president of operations or secondary marketing or underwriting, whatever it might be, to keep the operations going. But on the production side, there's a huge hunt for uh, people who can produce uh, to improve the efficiency of those that are already working there and to try to actually bring in new talent versus just talking about bringing in new talent because everyone talks about the aging of the industry and being white, male, pale, frail, whatever you want to call it. You're officially the second person to say that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's catchy. <laughs> uh, but it's true. It's true. And, and uh, when you talk to somebody who's under the age of 30 about entering the business and they, they go to a conference and you look around the lobby at who's standing around talking about, oh, I remember when Countrywide did this and remember that ARM product that WAMU had. Somebody under the age of 30 or even 40 doesn't, 
really care about that. Um, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to sit around and, and, and talk about it. They are much more interested in where the industry is going and what kind of technology there is. And so the ability to attract younger people, uh, everyone talks about it, but the ability to actually carry it out is a, is a whole other issue. And so you have companies that are good companies, I think, who, are, who have set up internship programs, mm -hmm. who are trying to go to the high schools or the colleges and recruit, who are trying to offer some kinds of friends of friends program, you know, bring in one of your friends to work here. And if they stay a year, you know, you get, you know, $5,000 or things like that. Yeah. The companies are experimenting with. And I think they are trying to bring new people into the industry. So, so you've got the op side of the business, you've got the sales side of the business and the sales side of the business could really use some new blood. Uh, and it's not so much lenders, but it's also vendors, uh, you know, mortgage insurance companies, some of these companies who have been around for a long time, uh, are aging just as much as everybody else. So bringing in new blood, I think, is is very, very important. Yeah, it, it's something that's really tough, too. Like like you said, it's a lot of talk and a lot of things that they'll try a little bit, maybe go one foot in just to test the waters. It doesn't work out, and you revert back to your old ways. But that's not the way to do it. I, one of the things that I, I believe companies should be doing is getting into the universities more because college students who are learning about finance or business or technology, I mean, they don't even know the mortgage industry exists. They know it's the, this box of real estate, finance, maybe. Um, but there's so many industries within the mortgage industry. It's crazy. Like, I was, I was living in Iowa, and I could have been a trader doing Wall Street-style trading for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in a given month. Like, what? That's absurd. <laughs> I, I had no idea that existed. Or, like, that underwriting is a very good job to have and if you can get that way pretty soon after college well you're doing really good for yourself yeah i mean i i got a finance degree and you know we talked about the mortgage industry it's a big driver of the u.s economy and it was also conveniently like in 2008 <laughs> but uh which made finance classes super interesting but um but like that was never an opportunity of like a career it was like you either go to like b of a or you go to wells fargo because i was in the carolinas but like you go down to to those and you do like corporate debt securities and all that stuff. But like the the opportunity of like a mortgage job, like that's never talked about or anything. No, it's not. In fact, a lot of things aren't glamorous that offer some great opportunities for people. If you look at um, if you look at a light bulb, somebody somewhere brought you that light bulb. They manufactured it. They shipped it to you. They got it to you somehow. And now that process probably changes just as much as anything else. But people don't think about, oh, I could go into light bulb manufacturing. Or maybe I'll go into manufacturing concrete because the world needs concrete. And I know some very successful people who have some very mundane, or I should say, who have jobs in some very mundane industries and they really enjoy it, and it gives them the lifestyle that they like, and it provides a product that a lot of people enjoy and that a lot of people don't think about. You just don't think about, oh, somebody manufactured this bag of concrete or somebody uh, manufactured this rake or somebody did whatever it was. And mortgage banking has fallen into that to some extent or to a great degree, but we also have some bad publicity from 2008 
2009, 2010, that we as an industry are overcoming. And so the ability not only to let people know that, hey, we have a really neat industry that helps millions of people every year around the nation, but also we're not all ogres and, and uh, we don't have horns and pitchforks and so forth. Uh, to be able to do do all that is, you know, it's just going to take some time. Yeah. And like in terms of, we talked about attracting and retaining talent, the a big piece of what the millennial generation wants is an employer who has like a, a value add to society and, you know, no, no shame on the oil and gas industry, but like you can find good in the mortgage industry. And there really is like that, that core fabric of good um, and of helping people get homes and empowering the American dream that I think if, if marketed the correct way is, is extremely attractive to younger talent. Well, I agree. Well, some of the things too, like if you t- we talk about an aging population, that's not just in in the ranks of the company; it's also the owners. And so you see uh, owners trying to find a liquidity in their business model that they're unable to do so without going through historical mergers and acquisitions, with they, which they may not be ready for. But they might not have the right people internally to hand it over to. So it it is an unsexy business. But it's one that helps millions of people every year. People should be excited to get into this, but I just don't know if they know that the opportunity exists. So how do you get that news out? Yeah, the the companies, <clears throat> there are some companies, as I mentioned earlier, who are, who are offering some really uh, innovative internship programs. Uh, they are sponsoring job fairs. They are being substitute teachers in classrooms. They are involved in the community. And I think it's just... Like I said, it's going to, just going to take some time and, you know, continued keeping our nose clean as an industry and not, you know, making the headlines every other day with some kind of crisis. Um, so I think, I think it will take time. I'm optimistic. I mean, at some point, the industry has to turn. I am seeing new faces. When I, go, when I visit areas and go to conferences, I am seeing new people and, and younger people, and that's nice to see. Yeah. I want to do a 180. Uh, you know, I think that an interesting part of your uh, story is you are obviously a self-proclaimed capital markets guy. You were in the industry. And then you basically became a, a media company and a content company of being a thought leader, having a newsletter that goes to thousands of professionals every single day. How'd that happen? Uh, I s- sat down and created a, an immense business plan and modeled it out, and no, I, I didn't do anything. It was a, it was a fortuitous turn of events, I guess. The commentary c- came from just educating clients or educating loan officers wherever I was working about what was going on with the market. Uh, it was, it was easier for me to help educate loan officers where I was working or account executives than not. Because the more information they had, the more information that they could provide their clients, their borrowers or their brokers, uh, the better it was for me. And the more that they understood what was going on behind the scenes in terms of rates and in terms of the industry, the better it was for me. So I thought, okay, this is pretty neat. I can I can educate folks and do this. So I, I would send this commentary out and the... Um, uh, the sad part of it was in, in 2008, my uh, my mom passed away, 
And I realized at that point I wanted to spend more time with my kids and more time just doing other things. So I officially retired from the industry except for sending this little commentary thing out to, you know, a couple hundred people. And uh, it, it just grew organically. I, n- I never had a business model. I never had a business plan. I didn't, it, it was, I, I was lucky. I was lucky. And I think that when people ask me, oh, should I do this or should I do that? It's a, it's, it's a cliche to say, oh, you know, follow your heart or do what you enjoy. Uh, and, and it, you know, think good things will happen. <clears throat> but it did with me. And I, I very much, every day, I, I think about how lucky I am to be able to do what I do. And even if I just, you know, help one borrower or help one loan officer, help one borrower, you know, I mean, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good feeling. But it's especially good feeling when people come up to me and, and talk about how much they appreciate it. And, and they end up with this free bit of news in their inbox every day. And there's a, you know, lousy joke at the end that they... Uh, they can cut and paste and send to their mom or dad or however that works. <laughs> and so, and it's taken on a life of itself, uh, a life of its own. I think that, um, like I said, I, I, every day I think about how lucky I am. I mean, obviously there was something that, whether you planned it this way or not, there was something that was refreshing to the industry to go from 100 people to thousands of subscribers that you have. I don't know your exact number of how many subscribers you have, but there must have been a void there in the industry of what you provide for it to for it to catch on there there was a void when i when i was doing it there were paid sources uh, you could um, uh, subscribe to uh, paid paid news sources of varying degrees of quality you could receive news from the investors, the investor community, you would receive updates from Countrywide or Washington Mutual or Wells Fargo or whoever. You could receive information from vendors. You could read the Wall Street Journal. You could watch CNBC or listen to Bloomberg. I mean, there were different different sources of information, but there, there didn't seem to be any kind of, at that point, daily, free, relevant unbiased. content. Unbiased. Yeah, unbiased is a big, is a big part of that. And I didn't, I didn't, I figured if I wasn't working for anybody, I didn't, I didn't have to report on, uh, I didn't have to bias my reporting. I could just say, yeah. you know, here's what's going on. And, uh, and people I thought, I think still find it refreshing that I don't, I can just say what I want to some extent, although I really used to be able to say what I wanted <laughs> to say. And then as the readership grew uh, to a, to a lot, the, for me to put in opinions or me to put in rumors has kind of gone by the wayside to a great degree because if I put in something that inevitably I get, I don't want, I don't want to deal with emails for the rest of the day saying you shouldn't believe what you believe uh, and so forth. So yeah, I, I think there was a void of just something that was easy to do and easy to read and, and uh, was, was kind of lighthearted and people, People, some people read it every day, cover to cover. Oh yeah, page to page, and others just kind of skim through it because you know they don't care about the jobs or they don't care about you know the joke. Some people say I read it, I read it every day except for the joke. Other people say I read everything, I read every joke every day, but not anything else. So I mean, you know, teach each of their own. But I'm I'm glad I do it, and uh, uh, you know, it's it's provides me a lot of benefits. We are also glad that you do it. We uh, at Maxwell we. Uh, any new employee that starts as part of their onboarding is subscribed to the Chrisman email. Oh, good. And Thank you. It's a really nice way for people to 
to bring up questions on a regular basis, whether it be team meetings, one-on-ones, just out getting snacks. You say, I don't understand what a warehouse line is or something like that, you know, where you can now introduce the conversation to learn more and more. So it is, you're promoting this thing that is education as well. And it's, it's really good. I have a question. Have you ever looked back at maybe one of your reports from 2009 or 10 and ever looked back to see how far you've come and how much you've changed? Cause you had a smile on your face when you said that you used to be able to say what you really wanted to. <laughs> Well, I, I have gone back <clears throat> for a while uh, on my to-do list was to go back and, as a joke, uh, go back and get a commentary from 10 years ago and just produce it, send it out that day <laughs> and, and see what people said. Yeah. You know, Rob, April 1st is not that far away. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I like my April 1 edition. Uh, I've already written a good chunk of it. Uh, uh, now you're making my mind wander. But anyway, <laughs> but, but I never got around to it. So every once in a while, I'll go back and look, and it'll be yeah. something uh, uh, interesting that was going on with, you know, Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers or whatever. But uh, I, I, still, I, should still, I, should, I should still do that. Maybe I'll do it April 1, 2021, since I've already done most of 2020's April 1 edition. That would be, I mean, there's so much that's happened in that last 10 years. If, oh, yeah. There's a way that you could, like, turn that into metadata and find the trends and stuff. That'd be well, so cool. When you go back and look at the top lenders from 10 years ago or 20 years ago, they aren't the same yeah. as they are now. It's amazing how things change in this industry. Mm-hmm. And that's funny because the top 10 lenders, they can change in this industry because they're not 60% market shareholders. They, they're they ready to be taken by somebody else. Yeah. So what's the thing in the industry right now that you think is the biggest gap of what lenders need to be focusing on? Where are they either distracted from or not well, able to see? In, in, in what's uh, it, it's an easy thing to say technology, but I will probably differ from your other guests and say <clears throat> cybersecurity. Uh, I think that that is a, can be a huge... Uh, Ignore, ignore, ignore Brian's random hand signs that no one can see. Uh, I love information security. Well, I mean, it's, it's crazy, <clears throat> excuse me, how, how a hit, how a hack can negatively, it can wipe a company out. Oh, yeah. And a company could, could wire off, you know, three or $400,000, which could be their profit for the entire year in one bad transaction. And I think that it's one of those things where a lot of people talk about it. Oh, like I need a password. I need to do this, have, you know, password protected this, or I need to try that. I need to do this. But it's only now starting to gain more mainstream uh, acceptance. And I think that continues to be a big gap, though, between what should be and what is actually happening. Yeah, and I think it's understanding that, like, what you see on the news are the, the biggest brands that get hacked. Um, so I think there's a view of one, if they can get hacked, you can definitely get hacked. But I think also the, there's going to be a ton more attack and there currently is on the non big brands. Like if they know, if they have an idea that you have data information, um, money to exchange, you're ripe for it. Oh, exactly. The, you know, the, the, who was it? Um, 
Willie Sutton, the bank robber. I forget the exact quote. Maybe I should maybe I should have it memorized. But it's like you know why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, why do hackers? You know why are they interested in mortgage companies and financial services and title companies? Because that's where the money is. And there's a lot of money that's flowing around, especially now with you know the refi volumes that we're seeing now and volumes are up and and so forth. I mean trillions of dollars are going to fund this this year probably in mortgages and you know let's let's have a little piece of that. It's so. it's crazy like yeah the if you have one mistake you could have $100,000 gone in a wire fraud situation. As a loan officer maybe you weren't even the quarterback on that deal because you're not supposed to be a part of that wire transfer but a hacker can come in spoof your email address and say hey actually just send it to me and borrow goes awesome let's go if you don't if you're not educated about those things or communicating those things as well or having a secure portal to document like upload these documents or get the wiring instructions to the right people you're just asking for it and if you go into the public access to like court electronic records it's called pacer it's like my favorite website if you go on there you can go and see how many of these companies have gotten hacked? Not just mortgage companies, but any company. The lists are dramatically long, and you only hear about the big ones in the news, but it's every day. It's wild. There's a story that I heard. Uh, we, when, we, when I worked for a lender, we went through an information security um, certification process, and the story we always heard that scared us to death was the example of Sony. I think it was back in, like, 2014 or 15, and they had a group come in to audit their information security and say, hey, um, we really think that you guys need to invest about a million dollars into your stuff. And you need to do it right now because you have some vulnerabilities that are not good for you. They said, not in the budget. And then six months later, they got hacked big time. And it cost them, I think, over $90 million. And you sit there and you say, hey, if you don't have it in the budget, but someone's telling you to do these things, get it in there. I don't care what you need to do. Um, think about it. Take it seriously because one transaction that goes awry can can put your business underground. So how does a lender, <clears throat> let's say 15 LO shop, an average kind of small, small size lender, how do they like how do they approach this? Usually what happens is they will uh, go to a conference or they'll, they'll be talking to one of their friends in the business and they'll say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Do you have anybody? So oftentimes it's word of mouth. Oh, you know, you, you know Frank, uh, here's, you know, here's Frank's contact information. Give him a shout. And Frank uh, does, you know, run some kind of cyber, cybersecurity consulting company uh, and they, they implement a plan that way. And it can be as simple as... Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, education as you, you know, walking around the office and making sure nobody has their passwords on a yellow sticky note on their, on their clean desk policy, (laughs) (laughs) the, uh, all the way to, uh, engaging in some elaborate fake phishing schemes where, uh, you know, an email goes out to the employees and it says it's from HR or somebody, no, some made up name in HR and it says, uh, your benefits have changed. Click here. And when you click there, the employee is greeted with a message saying, okay, you need training and do this within the next 24 hours. And here's what you did. And then sending out another phishing request a couple of weeks later. And if the employee clicks on it, you know, they get a severe, like a warning, and like third time you're out. So a lot of it is education. Um, 
and and oftentimes the people in the IT staff are so busy with technology and rolling out whatever it is they're rolling out that they don't have time to dedicate toward uh, cybersecurity efforts. So oftentimes people do come in from the outside to say, you know, we'll we'll help you for twenty or thirty thousand or forty whatever I don't know the cost, but um, so they do outsource that, and I think it's uh, I think it's critical. I think it's very very important. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that you can do in addition to those phishing tests to understand if you are being spoofed or not, is just stop sending your sensitive documentation over email, unsecured email. <laughs> That's the only thing. Just don't do that. Don't send your W-2s, your bank statements, all that jazz over email. It Literally anybody could go look at it. That's what people don't understand is that it, you could just go look at it. It's easy. Yeah. Well, let's hope people don't listen to the podcast before they go to bed because uh... – because they might have nightmares now of cybersecurity, not sleep well. Well, Rob, I know uh, you've got a plane to catch in a little bit to go back to hopefully sunnier California um, than foggy New Orleans right now. Um, you know, one of the questions we want to ask you, and we'll kind of end on this, is how did you get into the mortgage industry? How do you, I think it's always a super interesting view from a lot of people that they somehow kind of fall into the mortgage industry. What's the what's the Rob Crisman story into it, the mortgage industry? It's very interesting when you talk to somebody going into something versus, you know, I fell into it or however they term making that transition. I was a, uh, I was working at Safeway uh, in a milk plant and then an ice cream plant and was dis- disenchanted with, uh, you know, pr- you know, dairy sales, <laughs> <laughs> with, you know, uh, packaging milk or packaging ice cream, and my mom said, "Well, you know, you've got you've always liked real estate and finance or whatever. Why don't you go back and get a MBA?" And I said, "Oh, that sounds pretty good." So I applied to UC Berkeley, and um, got accepted. And uh, it was in the MBA program that I found out about mortgage banking. I mean, mortgage banking in the mid 80s. I mean, nobody knew what that was really, but uh, <laughs> saw a little internship program blurb on the bulletin board and, and signed up and got accepted in the, in the California mortgage banking internship program and been in it ever since. Should it's be great. in the Hall of Fame over there with Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, there's a there needs to be a mortgage Hall of Fame. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be a strong candidate for the class of 2020. Hardly, hardly. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming and uh, and look forward to reading your report tomorrow morning. There we go. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. And that was it. We did another episode. Somehow we continue to actually put these things out successfully. So um, first off, we thank everybody for listening. As always, go listen, subscribe, download wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud. I'm sure four other places that we are that I don't know of. Um, but uh, continue uh, to see all the episodes by visiting highmaxwell.com slash podcast. And while you're over there, don't be afraid to check out our resource and blog section for the latest ebooks, white papers, and blog posts that we do. We don't just do a podcast. We write stuff too. Um, feel, free, feel free to subscribe, download, and we'd love to get a, re- get a review from you guys. We'd love to hear how you guys are liking uh, the podcast and any topics that you would love uh, to see. That's it. See you guys later. Wait, 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 don't go.
We forgot to talk about Maxwell. Maxwell was created on the principle that mortgage companies will win by, by betting on the augmentation of human ability, not by replacing it with faceless technology. At Maxwell, the power of the human relationship is core to how we build software. Every day, our software is used by hundreds of lenders across the country to serve thousands of home buyers. Mortgages are human and your tech should be too. To learn more about how Maxwell empowers lenders to close loans over 45% faster than the national average, visit www.highmaxwell.com or send us an email at meetmax at highmaxwell.com.